This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. More information coming up about the identities of the victims in Monday's van attack. Of course, this is when it really hits home, when we really realize um, who this is involved in and the stories behind them. Uh, Dr. Jess O'Reilly, who we have on this show uh, many, many times, uh, has lost uh, some people that she knew in this uh, situation as well. She says, tweet, several friends of mine were killed in the sad incident in her hometown of Toronto. I hope we respond with more than thoughts and prayers. Uh, so again, this is, you're going to hear about lots of people who uh, have been touched in some way by this as uh, we find out more. To talk more about all of this and give us an update, Marianne Demain is with us, Global News Toronto. She's on the line. Uh, Marianne, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. You're very welcome. So where are we now, Marianne, uh, as far as, uh, well, let's talk about the accused and, and what we know. Do we know anything more about the man driving the van? The question still remains why. That is the big question everyone wants answered. But we are getting a clearer picture of just the kind of person he is and how he was leading up to this attack. Police said yesterday that he had rented the van north of the city before that attack, uh, not long before the attack took place. And then moments before he started driving south on Young between Finch and Shepherd, he had actually posted, allegedly, uh, a cryptic post on social media where he refers to an American mass murder, murderer who killed several people in the States a few years ago. The motivation of that murderer was uh, hatred towards women. And uh, so that is an interesting piece of the puzzle. But the, at this point, investigators haven't confirmed any possible motive. They haven't even commented on those details as well. So what are we to, uh, I guess, is, is this all speculation at this point? At one point, there was uh, e- even thought whether this post was actually faced, uh, posted by him. I guess Facebook has confirmed that it was posted by him, correct? They have, and they, that post was taken down not long after the incident. Um, there's also belief that he had been identified, or he rather, he identified himself with a group called uh, of people called incels, which is involuntary celibate. Uh, so uh, that is another thing that people are looking into as well, because we know that of the 10 people who were killed, majority are female. And in some cases amongst this community, uh, there is uh, there has been known to be some violent and misogynistic type comments. So that is something that people are also learning about this suspect, his alleged involvement with this group or the possibility that he might have identified with this group. But again, um, anything... Uh, uh, pointing fingers to a possible motive in its connection to this police heaven set. Uh, again, going back to this group, is it a group? Is I, I've heard that it, it could be a meme, a blog series, a blog post. Is this an organized group in any way? What do we know about incels? It's definitely a term that we're all mostly hearing for the first time now after what happened on Monday, but it is a group of people who identify with that word because they feel that they are involuntary celibate involuntarily celibate because they are being rejected by women um you know their their women are not accepting their advances they feel rejected by women so that is where the term or how it's being used now it's a group of men who are angry towards women because they feel that it's the women who are responsible for them being celibate so uh this is something we're all learning more about now because this is a term that we've only, most of us have only heard about after seeing that post online. Um, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last of us hearing about this as well. 
Wow. Um, what do we know about the man himself, family history? I heard that there's possibilities. I've read there's possibilities uh, of that he may have been autistic or had some sort of, of mental illness. Any more on that? I know the neighbors have said that the family was quiet. Uh, some have said that they noticed some you know, erratic type of behavior, what that means, you know, it's all very subjective without actually getting any kind of confirmation from some kind of medical person who actually saw him as a patient. Uh, We also know that um, uh, rather former classmates of of him have uh, come forward saying that he was a bit odd. Uh, But what does that mean? You know, now usually as hindsight is 2020, people can look back and say, actually, come to think of it, he was a little odd. But really, what does that mean? Uh, We just know ultimately that he was not on the police radar. And uh, they had not heard of him. He had no run-ins with the law prior to this. He did have a brief stint with the Canadian forces. Um, and really, that's all we know so far. And we don't know why he, he apparently voluntarily uh, uh, stepped down from the uh, or resigned from the armed forces, from what we understand. Do we know any more details as, as far as him leaving the armed forces? No. What motivated that is still not clear. Um, I know a lot of people are now looking into his past. You know, was, were there any signs of this? At this point, though, what seems to really be the one that sticks out are the posts and these groups that he apparently identified with. But as for why he left the armed forces, that's not clear yet. Uh, we understand he resided in, in Richmond Hill. Do we know who lived in that house? He apparently lived there with his family. And according to neighbors, they were a pretty quiet family. They also expressed um, concern and, and we're sending prayers to his parents, wondering how they were doing with the news that their son is now charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder, 13 counts of attempted murder. Um, we know his father was in the courtroom yesterday for his son's first court appearance. He didn't say anything. Of course, the reporters swarmed him as he left the courtroom, and they were trying to get his reaction to the fact that his son is now charged in this horrific crime. But he didn't say anything, though he did look visibly upset. Yeah, he, uh, he he looked like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Um, mm. uh, anything more about siblings, brothers, sisters? Do we know any of that? Um, that I am not clear of uh, on at this point. I know our crime reporter, Catherine McDonald, has really been the one really delving into his past, his posts, his court appearances. And uh, she's also covering the story again today. So we're hoping to get more details uh, based on what she can dig up. Anyone who's familiar with Catherine McDonald knows if someone's going to dig it up, it's hmm. going to be Catherine. So um, those are some of the things that we are following up on today. We're also hearing more about the victims, though. Hmm. Um, we're, we're talking a lot about the suspects, but the people here at the memorial are really focused on the victims. We're hearing more and more about who they were. More names are being released. We have four names so far. Uh, we know the coroner has said that it'll take days for them to officially confirm the identities. This is not a task that they want to rush through. They're taking their time. A lot of the victims did have identification on them, but... That alone is not something that they are uh, using as actual confirmation, and not even the visual confirmation from families. They want to rely on DNA tests and medical records as well. Um, today, the newest name, you know, yesterday we had heard the name of Anne-Marie D'Amico. We heard Dorothy Sewell, an 80-year-old woman, uh, a man named, uh, that his friends called Eddie. He was a chef in one of the steakhouses nearby. We've heard their names, and today the Toronto District School Board released the name of Renuka Amirasinga. They said she has been confirmed as one of the victims who were killed. So that is the fourth name that we're hearing now to put a face on these victims who were killed. She was a single mother. She worked in nutrition services, and she was actually in this area the day that she was struck and ultimately killed. 
because she just started a job. It was her first day at Earl Haig Secondary School, which is not far from the crime scene. <sighs> and so she was there for her first day, and then this happened. And now her son, uh, who she was raising on her own, has no mother, no parents to take care of him. So this is really what the city is thinking about. I know some people don't even want to repeat the suspect's name, um, though, I mean, we've got to really figure out who he is and, and why he did this. But really the focus uh, amongst the people here at the memorial is remembering the victims, their families, and the first responders and the bystanders who were running to help the perfect strangers who were on the floor in grave condition. A lot of them coming to the memorial saying, every time I close my eyes, I cannot shake those images. They are completely traumatized, meant to hear that the people that they were helping had ultimately passed away in some cases. Uh, it, to just see the look on their faces, it's so hard to describe, but it really, truly is heartbreaking. And when you realize, you know, the path that this vehicle took from one end of the other, uh, one end of the block to the other, and it appears, you know, as people would see one or two incidents, they would then chase after the van or trying to, to figure out what was going on and, and, and no idea... I, I don't think anybody, when they saw their own little personal aspect of it, had any idea of the scope of this of this no, uh, and event. Because there was so much confusion. Is this an impaired driver? Is this a medical incident? Yeah. But then when they realized that it was, it appeared that the movements of the vehicle were so de- deliberate and controlled. And as police later said, this was definitely an intentional act. We spoke with one man yesterday who was recounting how he saw the beginning of the attack, the Van plow into these unsuspecting pedestrians out just enjoying this warm weather that we finally got on Monday. And so he followed the vehicle trying to get the license plate to give to police. And then when he realized what was going on, he started honking and yelling out his window to try to alert people to the fact that there is this crazed vehicle driving people down, mowing people down on Young Street. And uh, he he drove several blocks following the suspect vehicle until he got to about Empress. Those familiar with this area, that's just north of Shepherd. Uh, and then, of course, time passes and he realized just the magnitude mm. of what he was witnessing at the time. You can imagine there's a lot of people wondering whether there was more they could have done. And um, we're hearing also a lot of that at the memorial as well. And from what I understand, people were just paralyzed with fear. They didn't know. They were just so astonished. It's a split second thing. How do you react? Yeah. And when you can imagine what they were witnessing, people yeah. were saying uh, people were flying. Uh, It was just an absolute scene of carnage on what was a beautiful day. You're just out enjoying your lunch break. You're walking back to work with your family or your co-workers, and then this happens. And also those familiar with this area know this is a bustling area. There are a ton of restaurants here, a lot of businesses, and not really a neighborhood where you would think something like this would happen. A lot of people we were talking to said... You would think if someone was to target a place, maybe Young and Dundas, it's a very bustling area, you wouldn't think North York or, uh, you know, but as we know, in this day and age, things like this can happen anywhere at any time. Uh, Obviously, vigil last night, memorial growing. We saw the footage on Global News last night. Is is Toronto different today, Marianne? Is Is it different? That is definitely what we're hearing today. Uh, With Young Street open now, the crime scene tape gone, it looks the same now. You look at it, this is the Young Street we know. This is the part of North York, Willowdale, that we know. But in talking to people here who are just reopening their businesses, some that have been closed since Monday, they say it is definitely not the same. The mood, even amongst some of the customers at a gas station, I I was talking to the owner just about an hour ago, and she said you can see it on people's faces. They are trying to stay positive, but you can see the somber mood with people coming in and out. It is definitely not the same, but I know that the people around here, and of 
course, all of Toronto and Canadians are trying to band together to show that they will get through this. The question is, how long will it take for this to heal? I think it'll be quite some time. Talk about the memorial and what it's like being there. It's very somber. I was saying it was almost like you're in church. It's very quiet. Um, People are just standing there in solemn reflection, reading the comments. Some people are crying. Some people are sobbing. Um, Some of those people sobbing have no connection to any of the victims. They weren't here when it happened. Some of them were from out of town, and they just felt so compelled to make the drive and come here and just read some of the comments. Uh, You know, it's uh, it's just amazing to see the outpouring of support here, but it is definitely a very somber scene. The pile of bouquets is just piling up. The rain is coming down here in the city this hour. The candles are extinguishing, of course, under the raindrops. People are there relighting them. They are Mm. determined to make this a place where people can come and grieve together. And you can see strangers who don't know each other are talking to each other, bonding through this painful time. A lot of them were here yesterday, or rather on Monday. Um, And I think they just feel some comfort in talking to other people who went through an experience and witnessed the same things they did on uh, just a few days ago. Toronto, obviously a hustling, bustling city, lots going on, busy, 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 rush, rush, rush. Uh, many who visit there or, 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 or don't frequent it often, often feel that it's cold and impersonal. Do you feel this drawing the city together? You know, we're actually hearing a lot of stories about people holding the door uh, for other people, helping with groceries. Um, these are some of the things that we hear here at the scene. I think... It's always a wake-up call when something so tragic happens. And the fact that it's happened here in our city, something of this magnitude that we haven't seen not only in Toronto, but in the entire province, it's really uh, made people slow down and realize um, just what life is. You know, you always hear when something tragic happens that people go home and they say, I held my kid a little bit tighter. I think this is a classic example of that. Marianne DeMaine has been with us, reporter, Global News Toronto. Make sure you are watching Global News for the uh, the latest on this, as uh, obviously this is fluid and it continues. Marianne, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked about oil and pipelines a lot on this show in uh, the last little while. Now we're talking about... A full-blown oil shock? What does that mean in the next few months? How did we get here? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com, and with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Good to be here again, Scott. So in all of the things that we talk about over time, have we talked about this? No, we haven't. Uh, And uh, it's been happening uh, quietly behind the scenes. Uh, Not much uh, in the way of, uh, of media fanfare, but... Slowly but surely, the uh, the world is changing its uh, its position on oil. Uh, we're producing less of it and uh, consuming more of it. Okay, so before we get into what all of this is about, and this is an article in the Financial Post, let's go back a few years ago. We were talking about how oil was going to go through the roof. It was going up to a bazillion dollars a barrel. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it almost seemed like within a, within a blink of an eye, North America became oil self-sufficient, whether it was fracking, this, that, or the other. Uh, and then all of this went away. And then uh, or the threat went away. And then OPEC countries started flooding the market, driving prices down. Down, uh, obviously making investors uh, concerned. Have, has it come to the point where now we've exhausted our self-sufficiency and we're going to become reliant on other people again? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. And believe me, it's uh, worth billions of dollars in terms of the global economy. 
which is very much still based on and very much runs on fossil fuels like oil. It is uh, returning to its former self as uh, king of all commodities. Um, but yes, you know, 2007, 8, and 9, we saw massive speculation, demand for oil products uh, raised to such a point that Americans began to frack or use new technologies to rediscover old oil wells and uh, improve and invest and discover new ones. That caused, of course, uh, OPEC to have a conniption because the reality was that the U.S. was no longer going to be in a position, you know, at that time uh, to have to import fuel. It would eventually become energy self-sufficient. And by 2012, they were getting awfully close to that point. So by 2014, uh, OPEC decided to flood the market. Uh, They then uh, realized that the only people it really hurt wasn't the U.S., uh, you know, new kids on the street, uh, up-and-coming shale producers. It was, in fact, themselves. Venezuela, of course, is still... An example, a case in point of a country still reeling from those, you know, $26 a barrel oil that we saw by January of 2015, 20, rather January of 2016. So things have changed. Um, so they flooded bit. the so they flooded the market. And, and so what happened after that? Created about 400 million barrels of uh, unused uh, oil, uh, and that caused prices to go from $100 a barrel down to 26. And it was finally at that point that I think uh, OPEC. And some other members realized this is not sustainable. A country like Saudi Arabia that receives 90% of its income based on oil suddenly realized they wouldn't have money to finance and to pay for all these social programs to keep people nice and happy and not attacking, uh, as we saw in the Arab Spring back in 2012. So how do we how do we get from uh, where we were to now all of a sudden rumors flying around yeah, so that it's going up to three three digits a barrel? OPEC and about a half a dozen other nations, including Russia, the world's number one or two producer of oil, uh, decided to sit down and cut back production and, in so doing, restore what they had lost or had given away foolishly in 2014. And now, of course, we're seeing a rebalancing. Uh, oil demand is high and supply is getting tight. We're now at the point where we are making as much oil as the world can use. And the next year, looks like a 2 million barrel deficit. So even if the U.S. continues to... Uh, to produce oil uh, in record numbers and export that, it won't be enough to make up the difference. The global economy continues to churn through and to buy more oil. We'll be using 100 million barrels of oil a day, probably very close to this time, um, June of uh, 2018. And that is the new normal going forward. No one's uh, looking at forecasts to see a conservation or a drop in consumption. Uh, well, and, well, and you said you said right there the drop in consumption. I mean, when you talk to people in BC, some of them I shouldn't say all of them in regard those that are anti pipeline, they'll tell you the world doesn't want any more oil. There's a surplus. There's whatever. This was OPEC's intention all along: flooding the market, dropping the prices down, discouraging investment, and then they're back in business. Well, I mean, we know everything they say is pretty much uh, misleading and, and, and frankly dishonest. And so where does this leave the discussion on pipelines if it turns out that, no, there isn't a surplus, it's quite the opposite? Well, it leaves us in a situation where the rest of the world gets $90 for their oil, a barrel of oil, in the next two or three years, and Canada continues to struggle at 40 or 50 if it can get oil to market, which means, Scott, uh, not only will you see a devaluation, uh, as you're seeing today, in our credit rating, because, of course, we're not exporting anything valuable anymore, we're also likely to see massive increases at the pumps. And not just that, for every other commodity, as the Canadian dollar continues to tumble. Uh, that's the frank reality of what you're living in in a country that is now borrowing a lot of money to maintain its standard of living, because it's uh, basically kicked its main generator of wealth to the corner.
So uh, the headline in uh, on the Financial Post, uh, the world risks a full-blown oil shock within months. What does that mean? Well, it means that we haven't been investing in new, discover- new, new discoveries of oil. From 2014 until now, uh, the uh, amount of investments and capital that companies spend in exploration and new developments, new wells, has plummeted 80%. So we're now in a situation where we're quickly going through what has been discovered prior to this nonsense by OPEC, uh, and now realizing that uh, you know over the next few years, we're going to see a severe tightness in supply of oil. And that means that as much as we want to continue to frack our way through uh, and, and hopefully increase American supply of oil, the reality is that that oil is very light. Only certain people can use it. We need heavier oil. And of course, the only countries willing to supply it are Venezuela, Mexico, and, and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Canada, of course, is saying no to pipelines being led by a, a group of militants. And so we're going to lose a major strategic advantage and wind up hurting ourselves not only with higher prices, but also with the lost economic uh, benefits. Will we lose, Dan, or will this be a sign to do the opposite? Will this speed up the Canadian energy industry? Will this speed up discussion on pipelines as, obviously, <laughs> the world position has changed? Uh, the, unless something dramatic sh- should happen, um, you know, we've lost $50 billion in investments in this country in the past year and a half. The mood in uh, the world is Canada is no longer open for business, has sealed the door shut is confused in terms of even decision, decisions it makes uh, and is going to basically take a pass on this. And it's also going to take a hit because of it. But we'll, uh, unfortunately, Canadians are going to have to suffer in order to get them to wake up to take these politicians by the scruff of the neck and punt them right out of the end zone. Um, you need to get these people to actually start to back our winners and stop listening to the whiners and complainers who uh, you know, daily like to tell us the sky is falling and then use that as justification to completely vandalize this economy. So uh, it says within months, when are we going to start to see this? When, and, and how will this be reflected for Canadian consumers? Yeah, I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens in the next couple of months. Um, one of the first things would be more geopolitical. Does the Trump administration reimpose sanctions uh, on uh, the, Iran, the Iranian nuclear uh, agreement that happened two years ago, which allowed Iran to come back on and sell, you know, uh, as much as uh, three million barrels into the market. If that sanction is put back on, uh, those barrels will be constrained, and that means that uh, there'll be even greater demand for oil. So let's watch what happens on May the 12th. So that's coming up fairly soon. I'll be watching to see the continuation of outside of North America and Europe, the world that is uh, emerging, that is growing, the uh, amount of uh, uh, crude. Uh, requirement that they're going to be looking at. If there's growth of 2 and 3% in consumption, then you can expect that that will further accelerate uh, the uh, demand problem. And of course, there is no one providing extra supply of oil right now. We're living in as if it's, 19, it's 2015 still. We're supplying just as uh, enough to meet global needs. But if global needs continue to uh, exceed expectations, look for oil to move from where it is now, 67 for WTI, 73, 74 for Brent. Look for that to move up about $10 a barrel between now and the end of August. So how will the Prime Minister react to this? Because at the end of the day, if the prices go up, it's just more money lost. Well, I think it's already happening. Uh, your carbon uh, proposal is going to take half a percent of GDP or $10 billion out of the Canadian economy. So I don't think they really care because I don't think they're clued into what's uh, really at stake here. 
again, everyone thinks that, uh, you know, it's all about the green, wonderful environment and, uh, and that we can suddenly make this transition and it'll be painless. What they don't realize is that they're basically uh, goring their own, you know, proverbial uh, golden goose in order to pursue uh, a pie-in-the-sky policy that's hurting Canadians. And it is not lost on us. I mean, they, one of the largest uh, uh, debt-rating organizations uh, in Asia, in China, downgraded Canada's sovereign funds, uh, sovereign uh, benchmark, uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, a negative. Uh, we're starting to see examples of what I haven't seen since the 1990s here in Canada when we ran successful uh, successive cumulative debts over the years. Uh, as Canada continues, its outlook dims. Uh, yes, there's some positive stuff, but there's a whole lot of negative coming from the resource sector, and much of this uh, are wounds that are self-inflicted. You can point fingers as much as you want. At the end of the day, though, Canada's been spending a lot more time listening to the green siren song rather than listening to ordinary Canadians who want to put food on the table. And OPEC nations must see this happening. They must realize that this is playing right into their hands. Oh, goody, goody. I mean, (laughs) they're only too happy to send Quebec uh, oil from Saudi Arabia or uh, Iran or uh, Iraq or Venezuela or wherever they can get it from uh, because Canadians refuse to take it themselves. It's a really, really really wacky situation that is uh, that is occurring here scott and it's it's unfortunate because as much as i can talk about it as much as we can demonstrate the facts to support it there's a lot of people out there who are blissfully thinking uh you know uh things are going to change and that we're going to make this shift and you know i've been hearing that for 10 years now but what we're doing at the same time is really undermining our ability to make uh, and make ends meet in this country and foreclosing futures for uh, the energy sector and for a lot of jobs and wealth creation in canada uh, will we see higher prices this summer as a result of this? Well, you're seeing a dollar thirty-eight point nine. Wake up, Canada! <laughs> and the fact is, uh, when you have a dollar twenty-eight exchange for your for your uh, Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback, and much of that based on weakness in Canadian oil prices because we can't get it to the market, then you have to start to figure out, uh, you know, where we're going to go in two or three months. Of course, if there's a ten dollar increase in the price of oil, world benchmarks. While Canada struggles to, to mean, you know, to, to get even a, a portion of that, uh, then you can look at the Canadian dollar dropping to maybe a dollar thirty-four, dollar thirty-five, at which point you can add another six cents a liter to the price of gasoline in and of itself. Forget the thirteen percent HST in Ontario, uh, which adds to the misery. Forget the fifteen percent in the Maritimes in Quebec, uh, where this is a recipe for disaster, and uh, someone's going to have to, uh, you know, actually raise this house this matter in the House of Commons because I don't see it on the government side. I don't see, I can't recall a single time, uh, you know, strangely enough, since 2015, where a member of the governing party hasn't raised the issue of the plight of consumers when it comes to fuel prices, which are driving uh, us into a position of, uh, of energy unaffordability. Hmm. Uh, we haven't heard much in regard to the Kinder Morgan pipeline in the last several days. It seems to have dropped off the radar. Uh, obviously, there's certainly other thing, lots of other things going on uh, right now. Where is this? Is, is silence golden here? Uh, TikTok. Time's running out, and I don't think the federal government has a plan. I think maybe they will work with Alberta. I'm hoping there's something going on, but in the absence, uh, it's hard to... It's hard to interpret silence. Uh, I see that Evan Solomon and the uh, Minister of Finance uh, had a very interesting exchange on the weekend uh, on their station, and uh, it seemed to me that the Minister of Finance had no idea how to answer the question, do you have a plan? And the answer uh, seemed to be uh, ambivalence, obfuscation, and uh, a lot of uh, good tidings. Now, I've been in that position where I've seen decisions made, and you don't want to let the media know, but you are playing with chicken here. Uh, you're playing a serious game of chicken with 
uh, with very little time to go. Uh, on May 31st, that company is likely to pack up and go. And if you haven't got a, uh, you know, a, a plan B ready, uh, then uh, look for uh, prices to rise even higher. And of course, uh, look now not just at an economic uh, crisis uh, in the West, look then for a constitutional crisis. Uh, whenever oil prices seem to get volatile, then speculation enters into it, and, and it, it just seems to be a runaway horse here. Is that, what, is that what's going to happen in the next three or oh, four it's months? It's already happened, Scott. The amount of, uh, of uh, positions taken by what they call long bets for uh, Brent and to what WTI, to a lesser extent, have never been this high. I, I don't recall seeing, seeing this stuff in 2008. In other words, these tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies. The more people that go and bet that the future price of oil will rise, it inevitably carries it to that conclusion. And so the old uh, adage of a rolling stone gathers no moss, uh, this is picking up momentum behind the scenes, and it's likely to lead to higher prices uh, for everything, as uh, every commodity we have, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, agriculture, everything is touched by uh, oil. And so... We're getting back to a point in, that we saw in 2008. The rapid rise that we've seen here of 20 cents a liter, uh, you know, compared to this time last year, 10 cents just in the past month alone, and that's even beyond the switch over from summer to winter gasoline, needs to be a wake-up call. It certainly was for the Bank of Canada and Stats Can, which uh, last week said, oh my goodness, March prices for gasoline uh, are the headliner, have driven inflation up. You know, we haven't totaled what the damage was in April, which is far greater. Uh, This is going to lead to a number of uh, companies having to say uh, and choose. Uh, Either they go out of business, take their business elsewhere, or pass these higher costs on to Canadians. It's going to be a very expensive year. And unfortunately, Ottawa has no contingency plan. Uh, If it is that expensive a year, if this takes off... Will that not fuel the demand for to, to get this to get the energy sector rolling again? Will mm. that not inspire uh, companies to be interested? And, and and really, at the end of the day, governments will have no choice. Well, they'll go somewhere else where they don't face the kind of regulatory uh, dishonesty of you know saying you're going to do one thing and then not backing it up, which is what we did in Kinder Morgan. Uh, the uh, uh, uncertainty over Bill C-69, which the federal liberals are putting through, which will ensure that no future oil pipeline is ever built in Canada. You've seen a massive, uh, you know, uh, devolution of, uh, of of investments in the energy sector in Canada over the past year and a half. It has accelerated to such a point that there's very little left. Companies that, uh, you know, shaved off 50% of their staff over the past couple of years are still doing it. There's still pink slips being issued. It's a desperate situation, and uh, desperation in that sector is going to lead to uh, untold consequences for the rest of the economy. We can't take advantage of these higher prices because we've painted ourselves into a corner. On the one hand, we're saying, oh, gee, we want to do something for the oil industry because it's important for us, but, oh, we want to sign, you know, uh, ridiculous international treaties that have no basis in fact, but more importantly, which are, uh, and here I'm referring to the Paris Climate Accord, which unduly punish countries like Canada, well, the U.S. is basically basically saying, hey, if you don't want your oil, you don't want your refineries, we're more than happy to supply it to you at 20 cent a litre premiums. So, Get ready, Canada. Carbon leakage is going to start to uh, really impact your bottom line. I'm just worried that uh, those who are, you know, not ab- you know, are not aware of what's going on are the ones that are going to be the great victims of this. The, the folks out there who want the brave new world of green en- energy and technology. I mean, it's a wonderful thought, but it's undermining the Canadian economy, and I think that's unfortunate. They're going to survive. 
good, hard-earning, you know, you know, good working middle-class families are going to take a major hit here. And with it, uh, I think a cycle of uh, downward uh, momentum in the uh, in the economy. Why? Can you explain once again, and we've only got about a minute or so left, why we have to discount our oil? A caller's asking, uh, if our, our oil is better than everyone else's, why aren't we charging more than everyone else for it? We don't have everyone else to choose our oil. We've only got one market because we refuse to allow a pipeline that would take us to... So we just can't sell it. ...allow vessels to bring our oil to any other yeah. country in the world. Asia, Europe, you take your pick, would pay more for our oil. Mexicans are getting international. Mexican heavy oil, Venezuelan heavy oil are all getting $60 a barrel. We're struggling at 46 because we don't have a pipeline. So when those people are sitting out there, uh, you know, plugging at, uh, at our pipelines, funded by international organizations, remember who they're attacking. They're attacking you and me. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs Critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, appreciate it. Keep up the fight. <laughs> Pleasure being here. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember the name uh, Korean Baratov. He was the 23-year-old in Ancaster, the Ancaster Hacker for Hire involved in the Yahoo hack and uh, other Russians, uh, or rather Russians involved as well. Uh, but only, of course, uh, Kareem Baratov has uh, had to face a judge in all of this. He is in San Francisco right now waiting, uh, waiting sentencing for the crime that he has committed. Let's bring in Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney. He is with us now. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. Much, appre- uh, much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. It appears prosecutors are trying to make an example out of Baratov. The judge is questioning that. Are you surprised? Um, no, I'm not questioning, uh, not the prosecutor approach. Uh, uh, I'm a little surprised, but encouraged by the judge doing it. It looks like the judge is taking an independent view, and he's uh, according to the news reports, uh, to asking the question, uh, like, why and make an example out of this young man when other similar cases haven't, uh, haven't gone that way. How does that argument stand up in a court when you say that we are comparing this, our case, to that of others, the sentencing, what have you? How good an example is that? How does that stand up in court? Well, it's a good, exa- it's a good, it's a good uh, uh, argument to make. It's not foolproof. Um, so w- when, when you uh, are trying to decide what to do with a case, in this case with a sentencing case, you try to look at comparable uh, cases, and, and uh, if you... Uh, are trying to uh, follow their example. You're looking for points of comparison to say, look, this is similar. And the idea is that uh, justice should be, you know, alike for one and all, so that uh, people who are similarly uh, situated in their in their antecedents, in their background, and have committed similar offenses should be able to expect uh, similar consequences, whether they're uh, uh, lenient or harsh. Uh, that that leads to some certainty in the law, some predictability. People can govern themselves accordingly. And likewise, uh, if you're on the other side of it and you want a different result, either something that's more lenient or harsher than what the ca- past cases have shown, then you're looking for contrast. You're looking for points of difference to say, well, it isn't exactly the same kind of offense or it isn't exactly the same kind of person. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the prosecutors are taking attack on this to say, well, um, maybe he's similar to some of the other young uh, uh, offenders who have, uh, uh, young, younger persons who have uh, gotten into this hacking and committed mischief by doing that. Uh, and mischief, just so everybody knows, uh, we use it in the sense uh, of a more legal sense, meaning uh, it's either damage or interference with uh, others' uh, property or their use of property. Um, 
And they're doing it largely, as I understand it, because they say uh, this is um, something where we need to sort of maybe really set a new standard. It's because it's uh, it was so uh, widespread and it was so intrusive that we basically they're they're pleading the, they're playing the card of um, of deterrence. So they're, it's the it's the legal theory that uh, if uh, somebody has uh, received a, a, a severe punishment, others. This is general deterrence. Others who might be inclined to commit the offense will look at that and say, "Aha! Uh, I don't want to be uh, subject to that. Therefore, I'm deterred from doing this." Is that a reason for a judge? I mean, can can a prosecutor say that even despite uh, this personal situation? We need to use this person to make an example of. Well, I think so because the, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the prosecutorial argument. Um, as I as I saw yeah. it, the. Uh, the prosecutors are basically saying that this is um, d- different, precisely because uh, uh, it's uh, it, it, there are security implications uh, that um, uh, it's it's so intrusive, uh, uh, and I guess that what they're largely saying is that uh, uh, it's uh, not just intruding into the privacy of so many people, but it can have such serious consequences. And I guess what they're really saying is they want the courts to up the uh, the consequences. Uh, to provide greater deterrence. But I'm not sure that, I mean, I understand the argument, and that's what it is, but whether it's a correct or sound argument remains to be seen. I think the, the judge here ha- has some doubt about that um, in, in this young man's case, and probably that could be for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's questionable just how much deterrence works uh, anyways. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a, that's a legal issue and debate that's going on, and it hasn't been settled. The, the second uh, thing is that uh, whether it's really fair to uh, hold up this young man in this case uh, at this time, so, because both of them are looking at substantial times in jail, I think uh, the, the defense is proposing something in uh, nearly three, four years, and yeah. basically the uh, prosecution, the state, is looking for something in the in the range of about eight years. Uh, is his uh, Baratov's remorse in the courtroom? Does that play a factor? The fact that yeah. he also pled guilty in, in yes, all it of does. This? Uh, I mean, I, I speak as a Canadian lawyer who's licensed to practice here in Ontario, so I'm I'm, not, I'm no authority on American law, mm-hmm. but I mean. Uh, I can tell you from just my, you know, I'll call it uh, general knowledge of of these things. They they follow similar principles, and and certainly the principle of uh, remorse is very important because it shows a person is amenable to rehabilitation, and uh, remorse is expressed in various ways. But one of the cardinal ways of, of expressing it is whether a person's admitted the offense and pleaded guilty. So it is a common. Uh, well-accepted uh, uh, principle that this um, is uh, uh, taken to be a mitigating factor that there is a guilty plea. And it's not just because of remorse. But guilty plea also spares the uh, the state a great deal of expense, mm-hmm. and uh, it also uh, gives the state the certainty of having the conviction instead of the, the whatever risk might have been associated with the jail, uh, uh, excuse me, a trial. So, so it, it's a it's a perfectly legitimate uh, consideration, but the, I, I think it's interesting to uh, to know just to what extent. Uh, like, I don't know whether there are other considerations that go behind this, but it looks as though the the uh, uh, this is coming down to just a straight uh, point that probably he decided that the case was one that was provable. Probably decided that he could get a legitimate benefit for admitting it, and. Uh, and and they're just at odds about uh, uh, the prosecution and defense are at odds about what is the right sentence for for what reason and it really is coming down to this issue do you make an example out of them in order to deter other people Uh, his defense said that he wasn't aware of the extent of the crime he wasn't the person that that, that started all of this he was just the hacker for 
higher. Yeah. Can you plead guilty and then ignorance of the crime, uh, saying that you, you weren't you weren't sure of the extent of the offense, even especially with the lifestyle he was leading? Well, yeah, I I, I don't know uh, enough about this in in this fellow's case. Uh, I guess really what he's saying is I didn't know quite how. Uh, intrusive or, or or dangerous uh, or risky it was doing what I was doing. Um, you can go so far with that, but uh, reasonable skepticism could also play into it, where one could say, "Well, you know, you knew that you were going into." I guess he must have known he was going into something that involved um, apparently uh, thousands of different accounts, and uh, he was being paid well for it by somebody who thought that that was important enough information, and it uh, it kind of looks a little like what we call willful blindness is where you really do know the answer, but you just avoid asking it, the question in as many words so you can say, I really wasn't told in as many words. Uh, if you really are ignorant of it, uh, then that's you know legitimately taken into account for your benefit. If you're just sort of saying, well, I'm only ignorant because I really knew better, but I just didn't want to ask the question, then it doesn't really have much effect. The fact that the judge wants this, uh, the prosecutor's sentence uh, justified, does that mean that he will get a lighter uh, sentence than the seven years that they were looking at? Seven, eight years, ten months, I think it is? Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed here that uh, the report I saw was that uh, was something in that range. Um, for, I'm going to say it doesn't... I think the judge has a free hand unless there are what uh, mandatory minimums. And the United States, uh, and I don't know, I think this is probably a federal prosecution. I'm not entirely sure. Um, they have sentencing guidelines uh, which uh, somewhat constrain what a judge can do. But it seems to me clear from the news reports, at least, the judge wouldn't be considering a lower sentence if it was not legally available. So I think the judge has got the discretion, and what he's going to do is listen to both arguments, or she, I guess, I don't know if the judge is a man, I guess it's a man in this case. But in any event, um, Judge Chabry, as far as I, I know, is uh, listening to both arguments, and then uh, we'll say for reasons that the uh, judge will give, that uh, you know, Judge Vince Chabria yeah. uh, is going to uh, say, well, I, I don't agree with this argument for this reason, and I do agree with that argument for that reason. So I think the judge has got a, a free enough hand. Otherwise, there would be no point in the judge saying, you know, uh, I'm thinking about a lower sentence if it's not available. I think the prosecutors are definitely going to have to justify the higher sentence. So what would jail be like for Baratov once he's there well, for, for a crime like this? Um, I don't know. That's in the States. So it wouldn't be pleasant uh, no matter where you are because the most important thing is you've lost your liberty and then there are all the risks that are associated with a, with a jail life. I, I don't know whether he would wind up going to a, like, what level of classification they'd put That's in. what I mean. Would this be considered a white-collar crime and I somehow it, be less? My guess is it would be. Um, you know, for example, uh, and you could read the book uh, uh, with uh, Conrad Black and the time he spent in jail. Yeah. And uh, it, um, I mean, he was actually teaching and writing uh, when he was in there. Uh, but I mean, it's an unpleasant experience. You've lost your liberty. They tell you when to wake up. They tell you when to go to sleep. They tell you when and what to eat. I mean, you know, it's no fun. But um, it depends on what kind of characters you're running into. So he's probably likely to run into a so-called white-collar crime uh, uh, institution. They, if they do it down there as they do up here, and I expect they probably would, uh, he'd probably start at the highest level of security classification because that's the safest thing. And then, and then they, they they sort of monitor it for several weeks, see how a person is and 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 how they behave, and they'll get all the information they need, and then they may cascade it down uh, to uh, lower levels of uh, security. But um, that's what's likely to occur, I think. 
Jeffrey Reed has been with us. Hamilton attorney, prosecutors in the U.S. pushing for a longer prison term as the sentencing for Kareem Baratov uh, is put off for another month. Jeffrey, Scott, thank- Scott one yeah. more thing. Yeah. Can I just interject one more point of information? Yeah, go for it. I, I can't talk at length, and I know you don't want to, but, but just as a point of information, there are provisions, um, treaty provisions between Canada and the United States for sentences to be served that are imposed in one country to be served in the other. And there are mm. cases where a person will get a sentence that's uh, imposed in the United States, but uh, by through treaty provisions can be uh, allowed to be served in Canada. And, and I would think that, uh, that his lawyers will certainly be looking at that to see if he's eligible for that. Does, so sorry to interrupt you, but I No, that's that cool. Be... Does that happen in, at this point, or does that happen after the actual sentence? I believe that would happen after the sentencing has occurred. And, and would, you, would that mean that you may not even have to go into an American prison, or would it take um, some time to process? I, I can't answer that, but my uh, hopefully somewhat educated guess on it is that you, you would start your sentence in the United States, right. and then and then your uh, lawyers would pr- um, start proceedings to uh, have it transferred into Canada if possible. Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney. Thank you, Jeffrey, as always. Much appreciated. Okay, Scott, have a good afternoon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.